Radio Drome. Hey guys, why don't we call this the go to adamandeve.com and use the promo code Drome Show, huh? Yeah, because you forgot to do that at the start of the last episode. No, I, I did the promo. Oh, you did? You son of a bitch. I know. I Look, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll do it now. Go to adamandeve.com, use the promo code Drome to get 50% off of a single item, to get three free DVDs, to get free shipping in the United States, and to get a free mystery gift. It's not that difficult, guys. It isn't. Last week, we talked about the 1970s as a, in general as movies. This week, we're going to talk about the logical progressor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going backwards 40 years from where we were last night. But yeah. go into the 1980s. So, Brad Jones, what do you love most about 1980s movies? What I love most about the 1980s, other than the decade I was born and those were all movies I grew up with certainly especially in seeing them in the theater of course i guess what i love most like uh looking back on it now being 31 i just like the complete and utter joy i suppose of a lot of it the complete non-cynicism of all of it just the in terms of the types of movies that i like then comedies action movies the horror films the attitude of we're going to make a fun and entertaining movie and that's what they did that's in a nutshell what i like about the attitude of movies in the 80s and the types of movies that that were in the 80s because it's so free annoying ass cynicism and i love that I absolutely agree. The 80s were a fun time. There was a lot of energy in the movies. I mean, even the rip-offs still were fun. I actually, think the, I actually exact... think the rip-offs were more fun in the 80s than they were in the 70s, honestly. Yeah. Well, they, yeah, uh, yeah. because, I mean, in the 80s, then we were getting into a lot of the uh, post-apocalyptic rip-offs and a lot of the more notable Bruno Mattei films. We get into those in the 80s. I like A lot of those I like have certain qualities to them that I also like about much, yeah, better movies in the 80s. Say something like, say an action film like Commando. There is a joy that's present in both types of movies, whether we're talking about something like that or we're talking about something like Strike Commando. There's a a, a very just, we're going to have fun, a very, you know, we, we don't have a stick up our ass. Just that kind of joyful attitude about them. And I would go even further on that and say in the 80s is the only time you would have been able to get away with something like the Lugio Cusi, Canon Hercules movies, the ones with the giant robots for no apparent reason in uh-huh. the Hercules mythos, the Lou Ferrigno ones. Those mm. movies had no pretension to them. But they weren't put out as jokes either. In the 90s, if you'd made that same equivalent of a movie, I think it would have been seen as like a tongue-in-cheek, kitschy kind of thing. Or in the 70s, it just wouldn't have been accepted. I think the 80s paved the way for for that kind of movie. And you spoke of Bruno Mattai. I didn't know he was the original director on that Hercules, the Adventures of Hercules movie. Well, he did uh, Seven Magnificent Gladiators with uh, Lou Ferrigno. 
as well, uh, which was very much a Hercules-style ripoff. Yeah, you didn't have a lot of that tongue-in-cheek, hey, let's make fun of a genre stuff. You didn't have that same kind of, like Brad said, the cynicism of it all. Yeah, you know that, yeah, the eighties were hopeful. <laughs> you also had, and, and it's not so much hopeful, but you also had Canon really come in. Canon defined what now is looked back at as the goofy, over-the-top, stereotypical action film. Those were all taken totally seriously in the eighties, weren't they? When you had a movie like that, like like Hercules, and like movies like that, they weren't as completely aware of themselves as they would be like nowadays or even in the mid to late 90s then odds are it would be very aware of itself it would be very aware of the kind of movie that it is it would do it tongue-in-cheek it would be like hey isn't this cute hey isn't this funny because we're making fun of all the tropes of all these movies and when you had movies like Strike any Commando any or, Chuck was, Norris movie made in any, the 80s. Yeah, Chuck Norris. Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, Strike Commando is probably a bad example, but like a Chuck Norris movie, an Arnold movie, one of the Stallone flicks, or something like that. They were told very seriously stuff like Invasion USA and things like that. You know, hey, we can look back on Red Dawn and kind of laugh at the sort of paranoia that's in that movie, but that was very serious back then. That was made. That was not made tongue in. They were not made tongue in cheek, and they're better movies because of that. They wouldn't be as good. A, they wouldn't be as good of movies. They wouldn't be as lasting movies if they weren't done as seriously as they were. I read a piece not too long ago in a, on a movie blog site. I don't remember if it was Dark Horizons or something like that. I don't remember what site it was off the top of my head. That was actually saying the opposite of what you just said that the fact that the movies were not self-aware of how bad their word that movies like Red Dawn really are just showed how stupid filmmakers were in the 80s, that how could they not see that a movie like Red Dawn is ridiculous and over the top? And that just, to me, is insulting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there is a certain kind of movie that shouldn't take itself seriously. Like, we were talking about this a few weeks ago with stuff like the asylums, American warships, or you know some of some of those movies, CGI exploitation stuff like that. Those movies you don't want them to be taken seriously. You don't because then you end up with American warships and it's completely freaking boring. But that's that's not Red Dawn. That's not those movies in the 1980s. That wouldn't have worked as well if it wasn't taken seriously. Like as much of a product of its time that Red Dawn is. It still has a lasting presence to it because it's a very well-made film. It's gen generally fairly well acted, and it does have some pretty tense moments in it. The other thing, because, well, you had the rise of direct-to-video there, so there were a lot of movies that were for specific genres. But you also, you didn't have the internet back then where you didn't have 800 people tell you, oh, this movie sucks. You had to find out yeah. on your own, and that was actually yeah. the fun of it. You didn't have a million cynical assholes, sorry, yeah. saying, saying like... I'm not sure uh, if that was a shot at me or internet culture no, or both. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was a shot at internet culture, which I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite. I don't. But <laughs> you didn't have a million cynical assholes going, ugh, his hair wouldn't have been like that if he was really in the Navy. You know, or some stupid crap like that. Before we forget... Which I I don't know if that well I don't know if that I 
I don't think I'm that kind of reviewer, so don't know if I'm to really... To be a... fair, though, Brad, you are also kind of playing a character. So when you are doing a Cinema Snob episode, you're kind of playing against Brad Jones. Well, I'm not really talking about that. That Obviously, that's a character. Yeah, uh, I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about more so when I'm actually reviewing something. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of critics and they review things very differently. Some go for more like a very technical aspect of it. Others go more so for the emo- what kind of emotion they take away from it. That's very much the kind of reviewer I am is I go for the if I'm emotionally invested in something, I don't give a crap what little nitpick you know you can pull apart from the story if i'm not very emotionally invested in it then it's fair freaking game that's the kind of critic that i am uh, so me per like <laughs> me personally like i don't think i really fall in with that very very over cynical <laughs> internet reviewing crowd otherwise otherwise that prometheus re-review wouldn't have been a fake review that would have been from the heart <laughs> well and see like i come from the the school of i genuinely love the stuff canon was putting out or the stuff that fred olin ray was putting out before he got all pretentious even the stuff that jowski's favorite person in the world david dakota was putting out before they just became softcore gay porn flicks they were doing it honestly and they were really yeah. trying to do something no matter what you say about the asylum Leaving out people like Anthony Ferrante, who actually try, admit it, most of the Asylum, their movies aren't really trying, are they? Whereas Canon, they were trying. I mean, Canon really thought they could buy respectability, and they found out that it didn't work, but they tried. More, I, yeah, there's more of them. There's Asylum movies that definitely try very hard, but there's a lot of them that don't. But I'm, I'm, I, I kind of am in your corner on that too, in that. I don't really use the term guilty pleasure or uh, it, watching something ironically or, or stuff like that. I, I don't. I, I genuinely like what I like. I mean, my favorite movie is Caligula. One of my other favorite movies is Toxic Avenger. I genuinely love those movies. Now, there are plenty of movies that I watch and I know that they're bad but they're kind of entertaining in a train wrecky kind of way like i love like hilarious hollywood train wreck something like moment by moment or heartbeats or things like that that can be kind of entertaining but i i wouldn't say i'm even watching it ironically i'm watching it because i i find some semblance of entertainment out of that if the term ironically comes more so it's such a 90s thing comes more so like I'm watching this with disdain. I'm watching this with hatred. I'm watching this with vile contempt and I'm punishing myself and all this. That's not the case at all. I There are plenty of bad movies I've watched because I think that they're hilarious. Nuki? No, that's just bad. That <laughs> you you just knew bad. I was going to pull the Nuki card at some point. Nuki? No, Nuki, Nuki's, just a ba- Nuki's just a bad movie. That's not even entertainingly bad. That's that's just freaking unwatchable. But you throw in something like moment by moment, I'm going to watch that with joy. <laughs> now, for whatever reason, this didn't happen as much with the 90s as, or the 70s, 
where obviously most 70s movies that were set in contemporary 1970 whatever, they had Uh the afros, the music, clothing styles, everything else of the time. Same with the 90s with, you know, the god-awful fashions and all that. Why is Uh the 80s so picked on for doing that same thing? You'll notice in pop culture, the 80s is more picked on for having movies that are quote-unquote stuck in the 80s more than a 70s or a 90s movie does. I think it's probably because the 80s were more vibrant about it, a lot brighter, a, a lot louder, a lot cheesier maybe. And and don't get me wrong, I'm not really knocking it because of that. I still think that like a lot of those looks in the 80s are genuinely good looks. Like uh, Sonny Crockett, man, come on. Um, my son was making fun of weird science when I showed it to him, and he was just like, God, this is so 80s. No, those are good looks, man, I'm telling you. But anyway, I think it's probably maybe the, some of the cheese factor. Maybe. I don't know. And just the fact that a lot of the different uh, tones that they used were very, very loud. Let's take the most 80s movie of all time, Rocky Four. Okay. 8,000 montages in that movie. Very loud music. Very, very, <laughs> very, very exciting scenario, you know. Do you throw in a freaking talking robot in there and stuff like that and all the music? It, you know what that is? I think it's, it's, that makes it easier to spoof than maybe some of the things from the 70s. Not all of them, of course, because you do have plenty of black exploitation spoofs and stuff like that. But I think that, I think that it just makes it a little easier for people to spoof sometimes. And it, you know, and I guess, in a way, sort of, but I don't think of that as, me personally, I don't look at a lot of those different qualities as bad things. I don't at all. That's stuff I love. That's stuff I grew up on. I could watch me Rocky too. I Ford. love those movies that are, quote, that, yeah, that people say are stuck in the 80s. To me, yeah, so I remember I. watching yeah. that on HBO first run or seeing yeah. that in the theater. That's a, that's a positive memory to that, me. See, like, I, I, I agree the, with that. The term stuck in the 80s is not really a bad thing. It's not a bad thing in my point of view. Uh, that's it's so so what that you can tell. So you could tell that it was made in a certain decade. So like, what? You, you could say that about a lot of different decades. I love the opening to 16 Candles during the credits. And that's like uh-huh. a fashion show, the opening credits for that movie. Totally. Or Fast Times at Ridgemont High, all those scenes yeah. at that mall. I the, uh, yeah. love the scenes at the mall. I'm just going, I want to go to that record store. I want to go to that movie theater, damn it. Yeah, yeah. that arcade. And the, at the end, the little VN sign is on the arcade screen. Or, or, every every decade has, you know, every year has a feeling that this is the best year ever. And, you know, movies from the 80s are no different than their pride of being from 1982 or whenever. Well, and pride Brad, about you... just being very, very entertaining and just, yeah. you know, again, non-pretentious, non-cynical and all that crap the 90s brought us. Well, and Brad, when you brought up before you said Rocky Four, when you said the most 80s movie of all time, I actually thought you were going to go with Valley Girl because I'd say that can give Rocky Four a big run for its money. I would say I, I would put I love Valley Girl. I, I would put I would put Valley Girl up there. Not more so than Rocky Four or The Legend with, of Billie Jean. Not with not with all of Rocky Four's montages, the robots, the Cold War stuff. You know, Russians, Dolph Lundgren, Stallone, 
all of that. It, it, I, I can't think of another movie that has as many 80s movies qualities as Rocky Ford. The only thing that's missing from Rocky Four is a panty raid and a masked <laughs> serial killer. When I when I think of like an 80s movie, you know, looking back at it now as an adult, when I hear about some movie I missed in the 80s or whatnot and I see it now, I'm elated when I see all the neon and those walls made out of the glass squares that Miami Vice like to use so much. And uh-huh. there, I love that Miami Vice look because there were a whole slew of Vice ripoffs, weren't there, Brad? Oh, yeah, Shark's Paradise. I, I saw that one. <laughs> I was going to say, Jowski reviewed that one. He was not too happy with it. No, I didn't review it. I just watched it and hated it, but loved it. <laughs> I didn't review it. I just watched it, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, and, but, I mean, you had that influence, at, you know, for the right reasons on quite a few d- movies. Like, you know, anything Michael Mann, Anthony Yurkovich, or <laughs> or anyone who worked on Vice touched looked like a Vice movie, like Band of the Hand. That looks like a Miami Vice spinoff movie. Or Michael Mann's Manhunter. Manhunter. That, that could fit. I, I could see Will Graham teaming up with with Sonny Crockett yeah. at any point, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And here's the thing, too. You can look at something like Miami Vice, and you can tell that it, yeah, of course you can tell. It's 80s. It was made in the 80s. Uh, of course you can tell it's 1980s between the clothes, the music, and all that. But here's the thing, though. That's not that's not a bad thing. It's still The show is still intense. The show is still it's still a solid cop show. It's still, it's still really well written. Yeah, it's it's still my favorite cop show of all time. It's still suspenseful. It's still incredibly dramatic. It's not some uh, off the top of my head. It's it's not it's, it's okay. It's not T.J. Hooker that you look <laughs> you look at nowadays. And you're like, well, that's good. That's kind of funny. <laughs> when he's jumping on the hood of the car while it's on fire, while two cars are ramming each other, you just go. Shatner, how did you not know this was over the top, even in '82? Uh huh. And, and, and I could to- I can totally watch T.J. Hooker. I mean, that 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 it is entertaining, but it's not. Sure, it isn't Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> With the rise of direct-to-video, as Alex pointed out earlier, you had you were catering to a whole new market, not only directly to see these older films, films that you missed that maybe just had a small theatrical run, I really think video and cable made action stars out of people like like Schwarzenegger more than their theatrical movies did, because I know more people that saw Commando on HBO than saw it in the theater. Yeah, I watched it. My dad showed it to me for the first time. And uh, also, uh, same too with uh, maybe maybe a few of them that didn't have necessarily a very good theatrical run, like let's say Raw Deal, for instance. Um, I actually did see that one in the theater, though. Did you? I like I Raw, saw Raw Deal. De- I haven't seen it since that theatrical run. That's one I really need to revisit. It's funny. The trailer's funny, too, because it plays the theme to the Warriors. Okay. But I was... well, <laughs> it's kind of like the, the original uh, trailer for RoboCop that plays the theme to Terminator. <laughs> I was going to say that with um, direct-to-video, though, you could expand upon and cater more towards niche audiences. Oh yeah. yeah, it's like that that Cracker Jack movie you reviewed. That, that would have never gotten a theatrical release. But in the direct-to-video market, that movie 
I'm sure, I mean, it had to have found its audience or they wouldn't have made a sequel. Yeah, there's three of them. Only the first one has Thomas Ian Griffith in it. Well, yes, speak of, of course, that was more in the 90s that Thomas Ian Griffith had his run. In the 80s, he theatrical i guess karate kid part three but also yeah you had you had of course this shift to the more canon style big action hero type movie and and flicks like that very non-pretentious non-cynical movies i hate to keep repeating that especially after the era of new hollywood ended oh absolutely and then 1988 which was 1980 i believe new hollywood ended Right. I, I believe you're 8081, somewhere around there. But then yeah. you also, I mean, we're going to do a whole episode on canon at some point down the line. So I don't want to spend too much time on canon. But canon really tried something. Now, this doesn't sound unique when I say it, but you guys have to put yourself in the early 80s. This was unique what canon did. Their philosophy basically was B movies on A budgets. That the, mm-hmm. they, they looked at like what the what would what you'd call a direct to video film and they said, Okay, normally you'd make that for a million bucks. We're gonna make that same movie for twenty five million bucks and oh, release yeah. it nationwide. And for a while that worked. They they would vary they would even use a lot of that same kind of mentality in a lot of their promotion for their stuff too, whether it was calling Masters of the Universe the Star Wars of the eighties <laughs> Which, um, since there were two Star Wars in the 80s, that's kind of a misnomer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's a good point, yeah. Well, and then you, you also had, you know, you brought up Star Wars and even Masters of the Universe. Our friend Fred Fritz totally disagrees with me on this. But I think the 80s really opened up the, the space opera boom. I mean, yes, technically you had stuff like Star Crash, and you had a few that came out right after Star Wars. I think special effects coming down in price and being easier to do really opened up the space opera and the the sci-fi laser blaster genre more than it could have in the 70s. Well, you also had Empire Strikes Back being an even bigger critical success than Star Wars. I mean, same with Star Trek, too. Well, but you also had, I mean, okay, first of all, look at what a year 1982 was. You had The Thing, E.T., The Road Warrior, Superman 2, Star Trek 2, all coming out within months of each other. Turkish Star Wars was 1982. Yeah, that wasn't released in the U.S. I know, (laughs) but it was still 1982. But, I mean, (laughs) you you look at that, and I don't think you'd see a grouping of that kind of special effects-heavy films that could have come out even in 1979, do you? No, those kinds of movies, uh, not not as big as they were, I don't think. Well, then let me a- let me ask you both this. Now, since E.T. came out right before John Carpenter's The Thing, mm-hmm. and The Thing failed hard at the box office, do you think it was? Because a lot of people, including Carpenter on the commentary, blames E.T. that people w- didn't want a violent, gory alien movie after seeing E.T., do you think if The Thing had come out first, it would have done better? Or do you think 1982 audiences just were not ready for Carpenter's take on The Thing? Or was it E.T. that kind of killed The Thing? Well, you also have to factor into how reviews for The Thing, and it is and it is hard looking at it now, you know, it is hard to believe that that was a bomb when it came yeah. out. Yeah. You know, it, and uh, but at this, with that being said, too, 
you also have to factor in as well that even reviews for it were very, very mixed at the at the time it was released. So Ebert, Ebert Savage did, I remember. He gave it two and a half stars out of four. And see, um, his starring system, because if you read the review, he does nothing but complain about it. So I don't know where the two stars came from, you know? Yeah, it was like two and a half out of, yeah, two and a half out of four, I believe. I don't know. It could have been E.T. maybe, you know, people were busy going to see E.T. and didn't want to see that kind of movie. I I have no idea. Maybe, I I don't know, just, just some things just don't do as well when they're in the theater but look at look at what it did afterwards everyone forgets that it was a failure at the box office i think that that's going to be the case too with dread oh i agree with that direct to video allowed you to have a sleeper hit too so if a movie bombed at the box office there was still a market for it yeah which has been the case with dread yeah dread's made a ton of money since it came out on dvd yeah and then we promised we'd talk about this man this week. He, I, I think he actually was better at this than Canon was. Dino. Oh, Dino De Laurentiis. Dino De Laurentiis. The I greatest think, producer of all time. Well, and a lot of people, you know, after the King Kong 76 disaster, they kind of wrote him off. And then, uh-huh. yeah, he didn't really have a hit again after that because Manhunter was a bomb at the box office. Great film yeah. and made back its money on cable. Mm-hmm. Dune was a complete disaster at the box office, made yeah. back all its money on cable and video. Transformers mm-hmm. the movie, disaster at the box office, made back all its money on video. Dino just mm-hmm. couldn't get a break theatrically, it seemed, in the 80s, even though he made good movies. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of the ones that he did have around at the time that, that fared that fared fairly well in, in terms of box office are <laughs> ones that, you know... And then people forget or he had any involvement with because they're not the stereotypical Dino De Laurentiis movie, whether it was uh, things like uh, uh, didn't Silver Bullet do fairly well? I think Silver uh, Bullet kind of at yeah, least I, I think I think Silver Bullet broke even. I don't I don't think that did really well. I know okay. it, left, it left my theater pretty quickly, but I think oh. I read somewhere that it broke even. So it wasn't a disaster. Okay, and and uh, like he he had involvement with uh, a few other King stuff, like Dead I think he Zone, had I think Cat's he had Eye. all the King stuff in the yeah seventies early. Overdrive. I think he had an exclusive contract with King. I remember he Maximum had Maximum Overdrive. Overdrive. He had Maximum uh, Overdrive. He had Cujo. I th- yeah. think he had Children of the Corn. I so don't yeah, know. Uh, I, he I, also I know. had he had involvement with Raw Deal. Didn't he do? <laughs> didn't he have Creep Creep Show as well? Wasn't he a co-producer on Creep Show? Um, I, I have his, oh, oh, do you have his filmography pulled up? Creep, creep, sh- creep show. I don't know. Uh, no, I, don't I know he did. Show. He had involvement with. I remember he had involvement with like Evil Dead Two, and it, sometimes they come back. He did that one too, and some some of the Chimino flicks he did, like Year of the Dragon and Desperate Hours. He did and the see, Conan movies. Well, yeah, I knew he did the Conans. See, what I love still when 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 I see that D E G logo come up on a, on some video I'm putting in that just makes me go yeah Dino yeah I'm I with love you on seeing that. that DEG logo and, and th- there are films that I mean people forget he made the the real Transformers movie yeah Th- that was a DEG production you know mm-hmm. yeah exactly people forget he killed Optimus Prime mm-hmm damn <laughs> right because he was a producer who had some balls had some balls and some sweet fine cigars and fancy suits. <laughs> 
Another big producer that started up in the 80s, though. Well, started making it big in the 80s, Bruckheimer. Yeah, but Bruckheimer, he had a certain level of quality to him. Because he still had Don Simpson with him, that's why. Yeah, you can Sim- see when Bruckheimer fell off, it's when Don Simpson died. Yeah, that's exactly when it happened, because Don Simpson was the freaking power top in that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and then the 80s also brought us, we have to bring it up, yeah, Halloween was in 78, the real slasher movie boom of the early 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, I, I think the way Tony Timpone put it was that making a slasher film from 80 to 83 was just like printing money. You'd go mm-hmm. to Canada, you'd spend 100000 or $200,000 on this thing, and you'd make $400,000 opening night. That the, you could perfect. not lose money on a slasher film in oh, that yeah, era. I, I love slasher movies until the cynicism of screen said, Scream said, these movies suck and you're stupid for liking them. I just and got that's what, what every just, single one of them has been like since then. Yeah. I just downloaded one that I've ne- I somehow missed in 87. Open House? I didn't see Open House. Me either. I somehow missed this, and I'm like, oh, there's a DVD? I haven't seen Open House either. And you also had another big producer, not so much of slasher films. I mean, he kind of was all over, and that was our buddy James Glickenhouse. Oh, yeah, it goes right along with uh, Exterminator 2 was canon, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Exterminator 2 was canon, actually. But that wasn't Glickenhaus. <laughs> yeah, th- well, yeah, technically it wasn't. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, Glickenhaus, the Shapiro Glickenhaus brand, they put out great stuff. They put out, you know, Miami Vice knockoffs. They put out, obviously, Exterminator and that. They put out the, the really cool Bruce Campbell movie, Moontrap. Remember that? Yeah. The one with him, with him and Chekhov. Glickenhaus put out a lot of good stuff, including stuff that you wouldn't think he did. Like, he was an executive producer on the Basket Case movies and on Maniac Cop and movies like that. He was behind the scenes on a lot of really good 80s movies. Uh, yeah, because uh, he and Henenlotter are still really good friends, aren't they? Don't they still work on stuff together? Yeah, him and Henenlotter. Yeah. And another one who came from the 70s was Cohen, Larry Cohen. I think he made his best movies. As much as I love his 70s stuff, I love his 80s stuff even more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Was, God, was God told me was God told me to in the 80s? Yeah. yeah I mean yeah, you had God told me to, Maniac Cop, The Stuff. You know, I I really loved Cohen's output in the 80s even more than in the 70s. Q You're the Winged Serpent. Yeah. I love Q. Q is an amazing movie. You're the Winged Serpent is awesome. You have Kwai Chain Kane, you have Roots. And, you got Roots and, in there? You got Roots in there, you got Michael Moriarty acting as, it, you know what, I don't even think he was acting. I think they just shot him up with something and then rolled the camera. I think they did that in, in Troll as well, because there's just that one scene where he's suddenly lip-syncing to that song just out of freaking nowhere. I, I think that that's how you get Michael Moriarty to do what you want. He is amazing in Cue the Winged Serpent. He's actually better than Kwai Chang and Roots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like both of them in that. Uh-huh. Michael, he, Michael Moore already steals that movie. And, you know, again, this is the cynicism of the 90s leaking in. I saw a review recently, a video review of Q on YouTube, and the guy's making fun of the effects. And I'm going, dude, they shot a movie for under $100,000, and the effects look pretty good for 1982. 
Light and, one, think, and this is coming from me. Lighten the f*** up. That's one thing that gets me is people, when they look at movies from 1980 and forget that they were made in the 80s and they review it by the standards of if this movie had come out today. But I, I like that kind of effect more, that kind of effect, let, let's say a bad effect like that that you would see like in the, the early 80s, 70s or whatever. Let's say it's a bad example of that kind of special effect. I will still take that and accept that over a lot of CGI that's mostly considered to be good. I will, because at least, because while a practical effect might not look very good in a certain movie, I, I don't know, the weasels... Hey, hey, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer when Otis gets stabbed in the eye. Yeah, okay, like, yeah, like, like I, I will take that or like uh weasels rip my flesh or something or like a godzilla movie or something like that i i'll take that because at least i'm still looking at a physical object on screen at least i am looking at something that's actually there i'm looking at something that's actually getting destroyed that's why i watch a disaster movie to see stuff get destroyed not computer sprites getting erased you're watching actors react to something that's actually there. Yeah, exactly. So for, by that standard alone, like when we say that practical effects are better than CGI, that's not saying that all practical effects were always top notch and always looked holy crap. That's real. No, of course, that wasn't always the case. Of course, there are some examples that aren't very good. But even in those examples that aren't very good, I will still accept that over most CGI because, like I said, I like there being physical objects on screen that the actor is reacting to. And CGI that's considered to be really, really damn good CGI, guess what? I can still tell it's an effect. Whereas if it's a practical effect in the 80s that's the best example of a practical effect in the 80s, it looks freaking real. I'm sorry. There's a alert to it of like the um the same thing with like magic basically you see a good practical effect you wonder how did they do that with CGI oh you know they just type it in a computer yeah you know exactly how they did it and I'm sorry the C it can be as it's you can show me a very very good example of CGI CGI out there that's considered to be really good you know what it it might be good for its kind but at the end of the day guess what I can still tell it's a computer effect right and that 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 also brings me to the next thing. Now, some people complained about this, and I I embraced it. Godzilla 1985, Godzilla coming back in 84 in Japan, 85 in America. Mm -hmm. People complained that Godzilla 85 was too dark. And even at the time, they said Godzilla was a victim of the Reagan era, that it wasn't the Godzilla they grew up with, obviously being the goofier Godzilla movies at, at the end of the 70s. Do you think Godzilla got better by being 80, 80s-fied like I do? Or do you think it kind of ruined what Godzilla was? I think Godzilla I, 1985 is the best film in the whole damn franchise. Oh, it gave I, Godzilla a whole new life. It did. It did give Godzilla a whole new life. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it going darker. A lot of series do that. James Bond got darker in the 1980s. There's nothing wrong with that. It didn't ruin anything. And guess what? It, you can have a you can have a movie in a franchise that goes darker. It doesn't mean it's going to stay like that forever. 
So, you know, you'll still find some goofier examples you know, later on in a film's franchise. And Godzilla, and, look at the ones from the 90s. They got goofy again. Yeah, they got goofy again. So did James Bond. Uh, you know, they, they, got, they got goofy again and tongue-in-cheek and stuff like that. So I, I don't want, like, if you have movies in a franchise where there's that many titles to them, there's nothing wrong with taking risks and doing something differently. I, I like Godzilla 1985. I, I really do. I like that it I like that it tonally went a different route because why not? What's it going to keep doing the same thing forever? No, like you know, make something darker, change the tone a little bit while still keeping it as a Godzilla movie. Of course, you know, don't do what, well, you know, <laughs> what, what, De- what, uh, Devlin and Emmerich did do it. <laughs> oh yeah. That was, that was atrocious. And that, that was nineties oh. too. So we'll, we'll get to that next week. Of course it was nineties. So, so yeah, like, uh, I don't know if I think it's my favorite. I'd really have to think about that. I don't know if I've ever thought about what my favorite Godzilla movie is, but oh, mine's, I, I like that one a lot. Mine's 91's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah with the time travel plot. and that, everything. That's a really good one too. But but we're not talking about the 90s this week. I know, then, I'm just saying. But, but that the, stemmed from the, the darker Godzilla set forth. Yeah, from it's from the same continuity. But you also had in the 80s something that anyone born after 1985, I'm going to say, doesn't seem to appreciate, and that's the availability of movies. That before video and before the 80s, you were kind of lucky if you caught some old movie on cable or on late-night UHF TV. And in the 80s, you could basically rent or buy any movie that ever existed. I remember an old Siskel and Ebert episode where it was about movies that you could go buy, and they were like, being like flabbergasted, like, can you believe that you could, they, they, they actually say this, they go, can you believe that you could just walk into like a store and own Gandhi? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Gandhi was the example they used. <laughs> yeah, Gandhi was a little out of my wheelhouse. I was there going and looking for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, they were they were running through the different top ten movies that were the top sellers right at the uh, point where movies were becoming available for people to buy. And I believe number one was Flashdance. Well, and then but see that also brings out a different type of movie viewer because like today. If like any of the movies we talk about on this show, I've got numerous emails from people that say, I've never heard of this. I'm going to go seek it out. When mm-hmm. we're watching late night cable, we're, when we're at three in the morning on your local UHF station in 1988, when you're mm-hmm. watching Joe Bob Briggs on drive-in theater back on the movie channel, you watched whatever he happened to be playing. Oh, yeah. And in my case, yeah, that HBO. And so I grew up with HB, the HBO Cinemax package. We didn't seek these movies out. These movies sought us out. Yeah, like when I saw Cracker Jack when I was young, when it was debuted on either HBO or Cinemax, one of the two. It wasn't because like, oh man, I gotta seek out this movie called Cracker Jack. No, it was because it just happened to be on that night. And I think that's something that's lost on the new generation. You have to go looking for these. Where else are you gonna really just stumble upon some cool movie? that that you hadn't noticed before yeah that's that's something that has its good points and it has its bad Uh, like for me personally with what i do on the site yeah that that comes in handy to be able to you know be like 
hey, I want to do E.T. the porno this week. All right, let me just go find a copy of it. You know, that it's a little beneficial there, but at the same time, I've got the Netflix instant watch and stuff like that. And hey, you know, it's there's a lot of choices. That's nice. But because there's so many choices on there, I'm I spend most of the time just skipping past a lot of stuff, you know, skip, skip, skip. No, 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 blah, blah, blah. And all of that. And, you know, I it does sort of make me miss just watching whatever happens just, to be just on watching whatever happened to be on that night. It does make me kind of miss that because I I saw a lot of movies that way and I I don't know if I would have seen half the movies that I have if that if that weren't the case if there weren't so many options available. I I really don't think that that would have been the case. So I I do kind of like it certainly benefits me professional wise with with the site and everything but it, personally i do prefer that honestly the how it was back then growing up which is i'm gonna watch this andy sedaris movie because that's just what happens to be on this night and back then when you're talking about something like elvira or joe bob briggs or your local horror movie host or you know your mm -hmm. local friday night uhf host a lot of times you didn't care what was on you were watching for Elvira, for Joe Bob Briggs. They just happened you're, to be showing a movie too, you know? You're, you don't you're do that today. You're exactly right, because I would watch Joe Bob Briggs just for Joe Bob Briggs, because I grew up with HBO and Cinemax, so I could see these movies uncut, whereas when I would be watching Joe Bob Briggs, the movies, most of the movies wouldn't be. I was just watching it just for Joe Bob Briggs. Well, the things that made Joe Bob Briggs so good is there was a reason you were watching it, you know, more than Joe Bob Briggs. You watched something on, like, HBO or Cinemax, they were obviously showing whatever to fill a time slot. With Joe Bob Briggs, you were watching, you know, he showed this movie because, you know, he wanted people to watch it and explained why. And yeah. it was hilarious. And he, again, yeah, very, very, very funny. He he made, we talked about this before we started, before we started recording, but he made... <laughs> The rape scene and I spit on your grave funny. <laughs> yeah, on the in his, in his audio, in his audio, he does it. For those listening, he's got an audio commentary for I spit on your grave, and it's worth the DVD price alone. And you know what's really funny about that? And it is 1980, so it does fit. Walmart carries I spit on your grave uncut for only ten dollars on DVD with the Joe Bob commentary now. Fantastic. Walmart of all places. Of yeah, all that, that's what I places. found so ironic. But you can't buy a copy of In Utero that's not censored, but you can buy I Spit on Your Grave. Isn't that funny how that works out? <laughs> Great. <laughs> I've got the Blu-ray of it, too. The commentary's on there as well. Now, this became a big trope in the 80s, but it technically goes all the way back to the 70s. You started to see movies after MTV came out that can you can only call being edited in MTV style. That was a very 80s thing. I mean, technically, it goes back to Orson Welles' F for Fake, which basically invented what we think of as music video cutting. So that that's 70s, but that was so popular in the 80s. Well, it became more popular because you had people that directed music videos moving into directing movies. So that was the style they were already familiar with. But I don't think it would have been accepted if MTV had not been the hit that it was. Yes. You, yeah, you wouldn't have had the attitude of some some of the producers. 
didn't one of the didn't one of the producers of Miami Vice say something like they wanted it to be like that it looked like they had just walked off the set of a music video? Yeah, I actually uh, I don't think it was Michael Mann. I think that was Anthony Yurkovich. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that was Mann either. But yeah, it was it was one of them said said something like that. Yeah, and you also had you you the the dance flicks too that had certain music video qualities to them, whether it be something like Flash Dance, Flip Foot Loose, all of those flicks. Girls just want to have fun. All of those. Teen Witch. Yeah. <laughs> Teen Witch with the random rapping dudes and the random chicks singing in the shower. Mm-hmm. That that is one of the most eightiest movies I've seen. Huh. I, I think I caught that on cable some night. You know, back in the mm-hmm. early '90s. I think I was still in high school when I caught that. And I just oh, kind of went, and, and I just kind of went, ooh, Robin Lively is still cute. I caught yeah. it on ABC Family like three weeks ago. Of course you did. <laughs> but but then along with with that kind of music video style, you you also had actual music video programs, and I don't mean music videos in just showing videos. You guys remember Night Flight, right? Night Flight brings you Australia's own Norman Dempsey. Kung Fu comedian Frankie Pace host Rickshaw's Take That Takeout Theater. Rock your brains with Team Dream Debbie Gibson and Night Flight goes to the movies to preview Crocodile Dundee 2 and more. Join us for Night Flight's new filmmaker series with two bizarre offerings from Glasshouse Pictures and celebrate summer with the Cars, the Go-Go's and the Untouchables when Night Flight takes off to beaches, barbecues and bikinis. Followed by a viewer's choice profile of rock provocateur Malcolm McLaren. Stay with Night Flight for more movies, music, videos and comedy in stereo all night long. Night Flight was basically the basic cable alternative to MTV. MTV was only available in about 30 to 40% of the country at that time. It was still a pay channel in some places, so you'd have to pay for it the same as you would the Disney Channel. So MTV didn't have the penetration that we think of it from the 90s as having. So USA, which was free on most basic cable tiers, on Friday and Saturday nights, they'd have a four- to six-hour block called Night Flight, where they'd mix in music videos, live concerts, and low-budget exploitation movies. Yeah, yeah, they did. It uh, went for quite a Night Flight went until Night Flight went until '96. Yeah, that was gonna say that went until at least the mid '90s. It was basically like Alex, remember Special Delivery on Nickelodeon? It was yes. like that. For, it was like that for adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd see a music video, they'd interview Lou Reed, and then they'd show you 20 minutes of Night of the Living Dead, and then another music video, and then another mm-hmm. 20 minutes of Night of the Living Dead, and so forth. I remember yeah. the first time I ever saw the Devo documentary was on Night Flight. <laughs> So that was another weird alternative that, I mean, nowadays you couldn't do that, I don't think. I don't think a TV channel would be able to do that now. In the 80s, that was kind of an original way to counter-program to both MTV and HBO, I think. Is there anything that does that now? Anything? Not really. One of the things that I want to do for Hart Fisher's American Horrors channel is I want to do something like that. I call it a -a once-a-month video magazine. Mm-hmm. where we show a movie, he's got all these music videos that he owns the rights to, short films, cartoons, host segments, commentary. I want to do something like that. I just need to get a budget put together. So I kind of want to bring back, and now people are going to go, oh, Josh is all about originality. He's ripping off Night Flight. Oh, no, right, that's maybe just that one guy. Maybe just I am, guy. but still. Yeah, so it's okay when we do it, right? God, <laughs> That's the formula. 
It's okay when we do it. Yeah, God. <laughs> That's what you can call your show. It's okay when I do it. When when people who didn't live in the 80s look back at 80s movies, or even 80s movie culture, why do you think it has that negative connotation that the 70s and the 90s don't? Do you think it's like like what we talked about before, or do you think it's more than that, that the 80s just somehow has been bad-mouthed for the last 23 years, that it's just become ingrained in the new generation that, oh, the 80s were terrible? I don't know. I don't, I, you know, I, I'm going to go to my go-to answer, which is just to blame the crappy freaking cynicism of the 90s. Because he- yeah, there is that. There's the cynicism of the 90s in there, but you also have that the people that really loved the 80s are the people that lived in them. Like, like I me. don't have fond memories of the 70s, but I didn't live in the 70s. I lived through half of the se- The way I put it is the 80s was where the only decade where I was a child, the whole decade, because yeah. I lived through half of the 70s mm-hmm. and I turned 18 in 1993 where yeah. I became an adult. But all of the 1980s, I was a child. Me too. I was a Me child too, yeah. all, th- all throughout the 80s, and guess what? I loved being a child in the 1980s. You know what? I am glad I was a kid then. I'm glad I got to watch He-Man before it became a gay joke. I am too. Like, you know, it- it's easy to say, like, oh, man, I wish I was, like, 21 in 1980 or something like that. And first of all, if that were the case, I don't know what the hell I would do as my career. <laughs> I'd be making some. Sh- I'd be making some shot on video movies. What I would. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the fact that I grew up as a kid in the 1980s. I like the fact that I grew up with that, and am so non-like, just uh, pretentious asshole about it or anything like that. I like that I love that stuff, and I like that now with what I do as my living right now on the site with the shows I do, the movies I make, I like that I can incorporate all the stuff that I grew up with, tones, music, styles of movies, genres, stuff like that, into like the movies that I do and do it not tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, because that's one thing I got off of Hooker with a Heart of Gold, which, which you know I've criticized you for. I didn't enjoy parts of it, you know, so that's not a surprise to you, and it's also not sucking up. But it had an 80s vibe to it without seeming tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I yeah 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 I didn't make uh uh but yeah <laughs> that, that that movie yeah like regardless of whether you like that movie or not it you can tell it's not made to be like what we were talking about earlier just like really tongue in cheek sort of I mean yeah it has a preposterous plot to it but I tried and no at more the end of the preposterous than any seventies exploitation drive in movie did it yeah it it has a it, it has a preposterous plot to it. It does have funny moments because it is mostly a comedy, but not in that it's I'm trying to force camp or something like that. Like I'm trying to kind of I put dramatic moments in it. I was trying to be fairly straightforward with some of it as much as I could with that plot line because it is still a comedy, but not it, it wasn't I, I didn't want it to be a spoof. That's that's what I'm trying to say. It's not a spoof. Well, we're since we're running out of time, where can we find Brad still stuck in the 80s, Jones? <laughs> um, you can find me at thecinemasnob.com. And if you want to see what we were talking about there, that's a, a better example than Hooker with a Heart of Gold, honestly. Watch Midnight Heat. That's a straightforward 80s sleaze movie that's not done tongue-in-cheek or as a comedy at all. Uh, Geekjuicemedia.com. 
All right, and you can find me at 1201beyond.com. And yes, we have a specific 80s look to the website because that's what I requested. You could also contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. You guys have an 80s catchphrase you want to go out on? You're the best around. Nothing's ever going to keep you down. Push it to the limit. <laughs> I lied. <laughs>